0: I wanted to apologize just a little bit, last week I'm, like several of us here, getting over a mild case of COVID, and it's affected my voice, and I had to kind of do that in a monotone to keep from uh, uh, my voice from giving out on me last weekend. It wasn't one of the most exciting subjects, but I think it was an important (coughs) one. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to finish out the book of 1 Peter this morning, and then we're gonna get into Second Peter next week. Peter part two. <clears throat> we left off last week with a command for everyone in the church to clothe yourselves, all of you, no exceptions, with humility toward one another which Peter fortified with a quote from the uh, Greek Old Testament, The Lord resists the arrogant, but gives grace to the humble. From this, Peter drew a conclusion, and that's where we're going to go this week. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. (coughs) There's four commands in this section. I've kind of got highlighted here, be humbled, be sober-minded, and be watchful, and resist. And so we're going to take these one command at a time. I want to give a little background, though, for the first one. The concepts of humility and exhortation set forth in this passage need to be understood against the attitudes and the values of the honor-shame society of the first century. Almost every social encounter outside of one with your extended family was a contest to defend your honor against challenges (coughs) and to enhance it, usually at the the expense of your challenger. I can't imagine living in a society where almost every encounter was like that, but that's how it operated. The commands of verse 5, to clothe yourselves in humility, and in verse 6, to be humbled, are examples of exhortations common in the New Testament. We're used to hearing those things. But they were considered foreign or even unthinkable by those outside the church of the first century. One commentator described that period, that society as humility, was taken as a sign of lowly slave mentality in the Greco-Roman society, unworthy of a free citizen but as Peter reminded his audience they and we are exiles and sojourners this is not our country our society only God's honor is what matters the words humility and to humble include characteristics like meekness in a positive sense an older sense modesty uh, being unpretentious showing deference or respect, (coughs) not exhibiting arrogance or pride. The commands that we see in most English translations are translated humble yourselves. (coughs) And I'll be honest with you, that's always been a bit puzzling to me. How do you make yourself humble? Well, you could uh, put on all kinds of contrived, you know, self degrading or humiliation of some kind, but that's self abuse. That's not humility. And you can't really make it a comparative thing. I mean how how, how humble is it for me to say I'm more humble than you are? <laughs> is it even possible to make ourselves humble? As most English translations seem to suggest, my well, answer, I think, believe, comes in recognizing this command in verse six, as it's translated in this little list. Uh, it's what is called a permissive passive, that makes some sense sometimes. But it's a command. No question, it's a command. But it's not telling us to make ourselves humble. It's commanding us to uh, allow ourselves to be humbled. That's now that's a whole different thing to allow yourself to be humbled. Peter understood that to obey that command is going to require something that is not about us or from inside of us that can work to humble us. And he provides that, really, in in the next phrase. He says, under the mighty hand of God. Now, compared to God, we can be humble. We should be humble if we're not. To be under the mighty hand of God was not just a statement of hierarchy, he's high or low in the creation. It actually was a word that carried there, a phrase that carries the idea of control by a person, an institution, or a power. It's a strong statement of the sovereignty of God over his people and the circumstances of our lives. Not just over us, but also our circumstances. We are to accept, though not seek, difficult pro- circumstances uh, as part of God's humbling work. That's what they're there for. Neither complaining, why did God allow this to happen to me? Or protesting, I don't deserve what's happening to me. Or seeking retribution against those causing our suffering. Instead, we're to respond as Peter previously instructed in chapter 3, verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For, this to, you, for to this you were called, that you may attain a blessing. In contrast to the Greco-Roman cultural norms to pursue more power and higher standing in society, the call to humility means you serve others, not yourself. And you do that knowing, as the next phrase in this verse talks about, so that at the proper time he, God, may exalt you. That's where the exaltation comes from, not from us, it comes from God. There will be a time when those who are faithful, even in suffering, will be exalted or lifted up. It's a certainty. But in the meantime, we must patiently endure the stresses of living as exiles and sojourners in an often hostile world. Thankfully, God does not leave us unsupported in this, which brings us to the next phrase, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is not a new command in the sense of one like the be humble or be humbled. The only other place in the New Testament this word casting is used is interesting, though. It's used in Luke's gospel where the disciples threw or cast their cloaks onto the donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. (coughs) There's a sense of abandon and spontaneity in that incident that I think can be applied to what Peter encouraged his readers to do. The anxieties and conflicts that beset us as exiles and sojourners are not unknown to God. He tells us to cast them on him, to abandon them for a higher purpose like those disciples did their cloaks. He cares for us, and he has promised us that he will take care of us. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, God is faithful that he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with a temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Notice the word is endure it not avoid it. For these promises of God's word to be fruitful, there must be a certain self forgetfulness in our lives that's based on a trust in God regardless of our circumstances regardless of what we're experiencing. Whether we, that's the mighty hand of God in discipline or in deliverance is not really that important. The overriding emphasis on the sovereignty of a loving and just God is what we need to be focused on because he's the one that extends to us his love and his grace. Such trust, however, must not be mistaken for passivity or fatalism of some kind in our lives. The imperative to be humble is just the first of four, if you notice up there in this passage. The next two were probably to be taken together because they just were sitting right side by side. The primary meaning of sober-minded is literally not to be drunk. Now, in the New Testament, the words always used figuratively, to be free from excess passions, rashness, or confusion. Uh, In other words, to be well-balanced and self-controlled. Another helpful translation is clear-minded. This was the third time Peter used this word, so we should be used to it by now. We saw it in chapter 1 and verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he used it again in chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things at his hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And kind of attached to this is the idea of be watchful, which could be also translated alert or vigilant, but it's interesting because it presupposes the first state. It's kind of hard to be alert if you're in a state of what looks like drunkenness. The two go together. I think you can see how they build on each other. You can be find this one, the second one, alert or be watchful, be alert. In the New Testament, several places, a couple of good ones are in the context of the Jesus' return where he tells his disciples to stay awake. For you do not know the day your Lord is coming. And in the context of avoiding moral failures, as the teaching of Jesus was to watch and watch, the same word, watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. For the spirit of deed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The necessity of being sober minded and watchful is because of the danger posed by the adversary. By your adversary. This is the only reference in First Peter to the spiritual powers of darkness. The devil, or diabolos, means one who slanders. And it's another term for the, for the name or person Satan, which was borrowed from the Aramaic word, which means adversary. So Peter, rightly and appropriately, says, describes him as the devil, as an adversary. The Greek word was used for a person <coughs> bringing a complaint in a court of law or more generically for someone who was continually antagonizing antagonizing somebody else <coughs> we don't have time to get into a detailed theological discussion of satan also known as the devil but a couple points are relevant <coughs> <coughs> first of all Satan's created. This is important because it means that he is not omnipresent, omniscient, or omnipotent. That is, he cannot be present everywhere at once. He does not know everything. And he is not all-powerful. God alone is the omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent creator. Satan's a creature, just like we are. But you can be assured that he has the upper hand when we unwittingly ascribe divine or godlike attributes to him. We give him those kinds of powers without thinking about it. The second relevant point is that, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, <clears throat> the primary influence of the devil is as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In that capacity, <clears throat> excuse me. he relies on what John the Apostle said was all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pretension of life, those things that are not from the Father, but on the contrary from the world. Satan is a dark force behind the politics, the religions, the cultural systems, the economy of a fallen humanity. And it is through them that he metaphorically prowls around like a roaring lion. Peter chose to use this animal imagery, which we saw a lot of in Revelation when we were going through it. And particularly in chapter 12, I think it's relevant. Uh, We read in Revelation, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you on earth, for the sea is... For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. A little later in that same passage, it uses the symbolism of the dragon for the devil, became furious with the woman, who's the symbol for the church, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is an important passage because this vision given to the Apostle John described the time that we live in right now, a period of redemptive history that began with the uh, defeat of Satan, actually, through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and will continue until the return of Jesus. <coughs> it is through the perseverance and perverse and godless world order that the devil is continuously seeking someone to devour another metaphorical kind of picture, which is an image of the war that is being made on those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. This spiritual war, the main strategy, the main goal of the Prince of the Power of the Air is to get the individual Christian or the whole church to become more like the world, to be conformed, with the standards of the world around them. In the context of 1 Peter, I think the greatest threat to us is the unintentional conformity to the culture in which you're now exiles and sojourners. In the face of this threat, Peter commanded his readers, Resist another one of those interesting compound words that literally means to stand against. It carries the idea of actively opposing pressure or power. Well, being Americans, that should be easy, right? Unfortunately, there's some nuances in the New Testament as to where and when and how we are commanded to resist. The same word is used in the record of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, where Jesus taught You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And then later, uh, we have Peter in chapter 2, we talked about, being subject to every human institution that Peter tells us to be there. Paul's kind of parallel passage to that in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists is a different word. The authorities resist, there's our word, what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So, The lesson here is that we don't get to resist for any and all reasons in any and all circumstances that we choose. We need to be sure our resistance is faithful to the teachings of Scripture and not in response to the dictates of the culture around us. Paul clarified the proper realm for faithful resistance when he wrote, Put on the whole armor of God Interestingly, in the book of James, you have a a section that almost echoes all these themes from Peter. They uh, were probably teaching from a common tradition. Kind of a long passage, but I think it's worth reading. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says... He yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's important that that call to be wretched and mourning and all those things has to do with our attitude toward our sinfulness, that we have to deal with it, that we are part of that problem. So this successful resistance to the pressures to conform to the world's values and practices started with this resist, the idea to resist, but it begins as... Going back to our list here. Being firm in your faith. Which could also be translated steadfast in your faith. Now this word and the related uh, noun and and verb are uncommon in the New Testament. But they're used in a couple of places that I think are helpful in us understanding what Peter's trying to get at. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul wrote... For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing in your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And especially helpful, I think, is how Paul in his letter to Timothy used the same word that Peter did in this verse, 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who calls in the name of the Lord Turn away from wickedness. As one commentator wrote, If the cause of Christian suffering cannot be avoided without renouncing Christ, then the threat of suffering is always present throughout the entirety of the Christian's life. Such Christian suffering was a focus of the section of 1 Peter started back in the middle of chapter 4. Verses 12 and 13 is how I introduced it. And the final thoughts on that subject, Peter gives to us in the next verses. Uh, But I do miss one. Uh, I did. Let's go back quickly. There's a reason I had this one up here. So, we're not alone. The idea is we're not alone. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Uh, I think it's an important place, I can't believe I've skipped over this one after last week, to recall the first five verses of chapter five. Every believer needs to be part of a local body of believers, a church that holds itself accountable to the word of God and includes elders who are mature in the faith and to whom we, as youngers, I mentioned last week in verse 5, can make ourselves accountable. So, there's kind of a reality check here. Being true to the commands, be humbled, be sober-minded, alert, resist, will put us into conflict with many aspects of the culture and the world around us. We should not be surprised. Jesus was bluntly honest with his disciples, which is the verse I have up here. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. I have conquered the world." As one commentator wrote, if the cause of Christ, I already said that one. That's why we can't avoid it. Such Christian suffering is a focus. Okay, now we can get on. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter viewed that entirety that we were talking about of our lives, where we're always right there close to the possibility of suffering, if not there, as just a little while. He has said much earlier in his letter when he wrote in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials now the basis that he talked about for the rejoicing that you can have in that suffering was in the beginning of of Peter's whole letter here blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, unfiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, and by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. I am sure that what Peter called various trials have probably seemed to last more than a little while. Christians throughout history maybe you're going through that now here at the end of his letter he contrasted that little while with a reminder that God has called you to his eternal glory when our Lord Jesus Christ returns it will be the final act in a drama of redemption written by the God of all grace Then he will personally restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish each of us. Four words with overlapping meanings and a very, very strong dose of hope. Peter entered his section on Christian suffering with a doxology, a phrase or a hymn glorifying God. There are several of these, uh, what, literally glory speakings in the New Testament. Uh, First Peter has two of them. The other one was at the end of the first section of Peter on Christian, or the middle section of Peter on Christian conduct. is in chapter 4, verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom is the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I paralleled it here with the one we have in 511 at the end of the section on suffering. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, to him be dominion, forever. Amen. Both his doxologies include this word, dominion, or power in some translations. And they make a connection between God and Jesus Christ that shows us how that dominion is manifested through the Trinity and the work of the Trinity. Before we get to the final greeting section, which is a part of most letters in the first century, most of them in the New Testament have a greeting section at the end, I want to take a few moments and review the study that we have done of 1 John by looking at some high points. I'm stealing this from essentially from a, a New Testament guy named James Slaughter, an article he wrote several years back that I read, where he talked about the themes or the motifs in 1 Peter. I think he does a really good job of bringing all these things together. There was an emphasis on conduct. The word "conduct" is used six times in First Peter. There was a set of four words that we talked about could be literally translated "good doing" or "good doers." There's twelve of those in this in First Peter. Um, the idea here is that it's our behavior as much as our words. That make a difference in how we represent God in this world. Talks about the reality of suffering, even when it's unjustified, is what a lot of those passages deal with. The importance of honor and respect for everyone. That was a command in chapter two, verse seventeen. And it's one that we need to continue to hang on to. The example of Jesus. There's not a chapter in 1 Peter that doesn't have at least one motivational comment on the suffering of Jesus as an inspiration for us because, as we saw at the end of chapter 2, we're to walk in his steps, to follow in his steps. And finally, the anticipation of glory. we looked more learn more about at that this morning. Jesus began his public ministry with the announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand. It was the inauguration or the presence of Jesus and the person of Jesus that brought that about. This is the already that comes to the follower of Jesus with the new birth and the indwelling Holy Spirit. The not yet is the certainty of that kingdom when Jesus returns. Now back to the kind of the idea of the closing of the letter. We'll look at a few things in this. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Time for another drink. So there's two individuals mentioned in this last section, Silvanus, also known as Silas. The names are just the uh, Latin and Greek equivalents in the New Testament. We saw, see him a lot if you are in the, read through the New Testament, Acts, and in Paul's letters. The meaning of the phrase by Silvanus or through Silvanus uh, is disputed. It's one of the points of argument in 1 Peter. Does it mean that Silvanus carried the letter Does it mean that he was an amanuensis through whom the letter was dictated? He wrote it down and edited it for Peter. Does it mean both? Take your choice. I'm not going to take one position or another on that one. There's There's arguments going on all the time. Mark was not Peter's biological son, but probably the same person known as John Mark that's mentioned in Acts and in Paul's letters. He's also the author of the Gospel of Mark, which is generally or traditionally you know, looked at as being the recollections of Peter. So they worked together for some time. Peter stated the reason for his letter. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, <clears throat> excuse me, true grace of God, and used as, it as an opportunity for another command where he says, to stand firm in it. This was Peter's only use of this common New Testament word, which means to remain stable, to stand firm, to hold one's ground is an important look at that, a way to think of that one. As a reminder, the previous command to resist that we already saw in in this context, though, the ground to be held was the true grace of God. That's but we really got to use as our foundation. Greeting one another with the kiss of love. Uh, in the first century, in the first century, not the 21st century, uh, the kiss was a greeting reserved for relatives, uh, very close friends, and on occasion as a greeting of respect to someone of equal or higher social status. Um, A similar exhortation can be found at the end of Paul's letters to the Romans, Corinthians, Thessalonians. What appears to be the significance of this, I think for us as we look back on it, from a different cultural setting with different cultural norms, is that the church, first century church, practiced this kind of greeting to reinforce the view that the church was a family and not just another religious or civic organization. So they greeted one another in a way that you would normally greet an enhanced, uh, you know, a nearby family, an extended family. Which means I think we can practice the same kind of things that are comparable for 21st century, whether it's shaking hands, a pat on the back, or a hug, whatever's appropriate. They are, all of you are, we are all a spiritual family. Probably the most perplexing. And debated question in the closing of 1 Peter is Who or what is she who is at Babylon? For many New Testament scholars that uh, hold to the thought, you know, the, the position that this is a veiled reference to the church of Rome, where um, Peter probably wrote this letter, uh, Rome was equated with Babylon as an evil thing by the church in the first century. There are some others who suggest that this may have actually been a greeting from Peter's wife, who we know traveled with him in his ministry. 1 Corinthians tells us about that. I personally prefer the view that chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, form an intentional inclusio or bookends to to this whole letter that Peter wrote. And the easiest way to see this, I think, is by comparing the closing passage with the opening passage. And I put that on a chart here. So we see Peter introducing himself as an apostle. And then at the beginning of the end, this last section here, he writes, referring to himself again, I have written, and he tells us why he wrote this letter. It's to the chosen. And we see that she... Likewise chosen, we'll talk about Babylon in a minute, but to the chosen, those two, that key word in both places. Exiles of the dispersion was how he addressed his audience in the first chapter. They're at Babylon in the second, in the end of it. And so we have them both in with the idea of peace be multiplied to you in the first, end of verse verse two of chapter one, and peace to all of you as the final greetings in chapter 5. I think the core, the core of this view is that she referred to the church. Uh, church in the Greek language is a feminine noun so that's the appropriate pronoun for it. And Babylon is not intended to designate any specific locality. Rather, it was a reference to all the Christian communities who were exiles and sojourners just like the Jews were part of the dispersion and exile imposed by the Babylonian Empire I want to tell you a little story about our family and it will connect here in a minute many years ago when our two kids were still in school uh, I think my son was maybe in 5th or 6th grade my my daughter 5 years older so she was you know freshman maybe, uh, in high school, or, and we came across this uh, cartoon of uh, Gary Larson's Far Side. And the cartoon was describing the four basic personality types. You may have seen this. The first one is, the glass is half full. The second one, you can probably guess, the glass is half empty. The third one, half full, no, wait, uh, no, half half empty, no, half, what was the question? (laughs) And the final one was, hey, I ordered a cheeseburger. (laughs) At that point in our lives, that was a pretty accurate description of the four personalities in our house. (laughs) I tell this to point out not only to get a little humor in here, but also to point out, I'm the optimist in the cartoon. I'm the glass half full guy. Or half empty. Half full guy, yeah. Anyway, what was the question? <laughs> anyway. But I've learned something that seems less true to that kind of a character from the challenge of being an exile, as described at the beginning of Psalm 137. And I want to close with this. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows, there we hung our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? With all the good things of our world, for which I am very thankful, and as a glass-half-full kind of guy, it's easy for me to be thankful. I think there is value in sharing a little bit of the sadness expressed by the psalmist in this passage over being exiled in a foreign land. I'm not talking about anger. I'm not talking about depression or some kind of despair. Remember, I'm the glass-half-full guy. But I have grown to appreciate there's a a similar kind of sadness, or perhaps a sense of disquiet, that I've come to recognize the more I think about the fact I'm not in my true home. That gives Peter's final blessing, an extra relevance, peace to all of you who are in Christ. And I think it's just a reminder that we should all have a genuine longing for that day when we are no longer waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the things we've learned from this letter that was written 2,000 years ago. It seems amazingly relevant. To much of our world today we thank you for the things you've given us in Christ for the salvation that we have the certainty of a hope in our future we pr- pray that you'll help us to think more deeply and more seriously about the exceeding sinfulness of our sin about the glory and the salvation that comes through Christ and about the exceeding abundance of his grace. We thank you in Jesus' name.